This is Archive Atlanta, episode 208, Atlanta Cinemas with Behind the Slate. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. I am so, so, so excited about this week's episode. I have had Atlanta cinematic history on my list since day one, but it never really developed past listening a few theaters. And so flashback to January of this year, I got an email from Aaron, Atlantan actor and podcaster over at Behind the Slate, and he shared how he had fallen into a rabbit hole around the city's lost movie palaces. And so about a week later, we meet for lunch, and the rest is history, pun intended. I wanted to do this collaboration differently than other interview episodes because what I love so much about his podcast besides impeccable research is the narrative format really showcases his acting skills. So I don't normally do narrative stuff, but he has like a five-part series on Charlie Chaplin was the first director he did. And it is really enjoyable to listen to. It feels like you're listening to a movie. So this week, Behind the Slate is sharing some wild Atlanta history, like how Atlanta's motion picture history dates back to 1895, how Birth of a Nation impacted the city cinemas, how segregation and Jim Crow laws affected moviegoers, and also covering the cinematic greats like the Lowe's Grand, the Plaza Theater, the Terra, the Coronet, finishing off with blaxploitation movies of the 70s and historic preservation. You guys do not want to miss this. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy. Hey, everybody. My name is Aaron Strand. I am an Atlanta resident and the host of Behind the Slate, which is a film history podcast about the lives of cinema's greatest directors and the world events that shaped their art. If you want to check out the show, we are currently in the middle of a four-part series about the groundbreaking African-American director Melvin Van Peebles. Just hit the link down in the show notes. As a local history nerd, a longtime listener, and just a huge fan of Victoria's work, I am so honored to be a guest on this episode of Archive Atlanta. You know, this all started a little while ago. I was out visiting friends in Los Angeles, film people, And I mentioned that I had recently seen a 35mm print of Yojimbo, the classic Akira Kurosawa film, at the Plaza Theater here in Atlanta. And I casually mentioned that it's the oldest continually operating theater here in the city and originally opened in 1939. And my friend totally innocently said, huh, I didn't know there was any film history in Georgia before the tax credits in the mid-2000s. I bristled, ready to defend my city's cinematic honor. But the truth is that I didn't really know the history of film in Atlanta. So upon returning home, I started casually researching, and I was blown away by what I learned. Now I want to start this historical deep dive by giving some brief context on the development of motion pictures. If you find this interesting, I'm going to be releasing a full series about early film history filled with magic, mystery, and murder in the coming months. One of the things that I find so fascinating about this medium is that, on the one hand, film projection is an incredibly young art form. It's only about 135 years old, compared to painting, dance, design, live performance. This is nothing. But cinema did not come out of nowhere. The magic of walking into a darkened room to see representations of the world you live in can be traced to some of the earliest art we have, cave paintings. Imagine for a moment if you were a young hunter-gatherer or buffalo hunter in southern France or Indonesia, 
being led deep into a cave by a torch-carrying elder and being told a story about the origin of the world. And to illustrate this story, he uses pictures on the wall that seem to move in the flickering light of the flames. This is why movies and movie theaters seem so special and yet so natural to us. We've been doing it from the very beginning. Now, when it comes to the projection of light, we can pick up the narrative in about 500 BC when Chinese inventors began to harness a natural phenomenon called the camera obscura. If you've ever used a pinhole camera to watch a solar eclipse, you've seen one. Basically, if light from the outside world passes through a small hole, it will project an image of that outside world onto an opposing wall only the image is upside down. This is due to the way that light rays travel, which I won't get into here. And for about 2,000 years, humans across the globe used camera obscuras as sort of expensive novelties. But in the early 1600s, glass technology had evolved to the point that lenses were having a moment. The telescope was invented in the Netherlands in 1608. It was soon followed by the microscope, which doesn't have an exact creation date, but was well known by 1620. By 1645, a few people were experimenting with painting text or images onto convex mirrors, and then using those mirrors to reflect sunlight through a camera obscura with a lens on it, and thus having the painted image or text reflected right side up on the wall of a darkened room. And by 1659, a Dutch scientist named Christian Huygens thought to himself, well, what if we don't need the sun? He invented a device that would use the same principles but with a lamp as the light source. And thus, he created what would come to be known as the magic lantern. Very quickly, people realized, well, instead of painting images on mirrors, why not paint images on panes of glass that could be placed directly behind the lens? Then they thought, well, what if we painted a sequence of images on a strip of glass and pulled that glass across the lens? By pulling the glass strip back and forth, they created small bits of animation that might show, for example, a fish jumping in and out of water. Next, they tried putting two panes of glass next to each other. Maybe the foreground slide would show a beautiful mountain scene, and the background slide would show a train. And when the background slide was pulled slowly, it created the illusion that the train was moving through the mountains. Eventually, people created all kinds of gadgets, levers, spinning wheels, all to animate the slides of a magic lantern. The magic lantern could be found in lecture halls and royal courts, but the real money was made in horror. Almost immediately, illusionists and magicians used magic lanterns to project images of devils and demons. One early French adopter called it Le Lantern de Peur, the Lantern of Fear. And by the 18th century, magic lanterns were the main components of the first haunted houses called phantasmagorias, where up to 100 magic lanterns would project horrifying animations to the delight of European thrill-seekers. At the same time, a handful of people were noticing that certain chemicals could change color when exposed to light. A Frenchman named Joseph Nisiphore Nieps took a camera obscura, pointed it outside of his bedroom window, stuck a slide of pewter coated with bitumen inside, and let it sit for eight hours. When he pulled out the slide, the bitumen had changed color based on the light coming in through the pinhole. 
He had made the world's first photograph. He showed this to fellow inventor Louis Daguerre, who went on to create the world's first camera, the daguerreotype. This was a revolution. It was the first time in history that humans could accurately capture a moment in time. But because of the technology, there was no way of reproducing a daguerreotype photograph. And because the process was so difficult, many early daguerreotype photographers would both shoot several photos in a row or use multiple daguerreotypes to capture a single photo. The result was that they often had a series of images with slight time alterations. And as photographers looked at these images, they realized that just by moving them in front of their eyes, they could animate them to recreate motion, just like the panes of a magic lantern. Many people began experimenting with this effect, but the most notable was a mild-mannered British bookseller who, after suffering a traumatic head injury, became a bizarre and eccentric photographer named Edward Moybridge. If you've seen the most recent Jordan Peele film, Nope, you'll know that Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer play characters who are horse ranchers that are related to the quote-unquote first film actor, a black jockey who rode a horse in Edward Moybridge's groundbreaking high-speed photography series capturing animal motion. What they don't mention is that these famous photography experiments were interrupted when Edward Moybridge shot and killed a man for sleeping with his wife, went to trial, and was then exonerated in court by a jury who decided that they would have done the same thing in his situation. But that's a whole other story for another podcast. In 1878, Moybridge was finally successful in capturing a series of photographs that, when animated together, showed a horse in full gallop. All of a sudden, the race for motion pictures was on. Now, it's long been told that the great American genius with a capital G, Thomas Edison, was the first to crack the secret of film. This is a lie. A marketing narrative employed by Edison to cover up the truth. The first person to actually shoot a motion picture was an unknown French inventor named Louis Le Prince. In 1888, he used a homemade motion picture camera and a roll of Kodak paper film stock to shoot the Roundhay Garden scene in Leeds, England. He spent the next two years perfecting a camera and projection system, but due to England's strict patent laws, he did not file a patent for this invention out of fear that something might go wrong and his technology would be stolen from him. Instead, he planned to go to New York City, file a U.S. patent, and give a public demonstration in 1890. All he had to do was visit his brother in Dijon, take a train to Paris, and then continue on to Manhattan. He never arrived in Paris. French authorities and Scotland Yard investigated, but they never found a trace of Le Prince's body or his luggage containing his camera, his projector, and all of his blueprints. A few short months after Louis Le Prince disappeared, Thomas Edison filed a preliminary patent for a camera surprisingly similar to Le Prince's. This is a crazy story of true crime and cutthroat business that I'm going to get into on my own podcast, Behind the Slate. But for now, just know that Thomas Edison and his employee, William Dixon, 
by any means necessary, beat everyone else to the punch in terms of shooting films. But they don't use a projector. No, 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 no. Edison wanted to make money. And he thought the best way to do it was to control the viewing experience. So he had his team build a big wooden box, about four feet tall, and on top was a small viewfinder. It was called the kinetoscope. And for a quarter, you could look inside and watch a 15 to 20 second film of blacksmiths hammering an iron or a woman dancing or a boxing match, even cats boxing. Yes, one of the earliest films was a cat vid. Edison opens up kinetoscope parlors across the country, and they're a huge success. People line up around the block to see these things, but other inventors are watching this thinking, what is he doing? The future is so obviously combining this motion picture film with a magic lantern. So by late 1894, a bunch of different people across the world are trying to make this happen. There's the Skladanowski brothers in Germany, the Lumiere brothers in France, there are some other English inventors as well, but in America you've got two competing teams. The Latham family was a father and two sons who owned a kinetoscope parlor in Manhattan. Their goal was to film and project full boxing matches for a paying audience. So secretly, with the help of an ex-Edison employee named Eugene Laust and the current but disgruntled Edison motion picture guru, William Dixon, they created a motion picture projector called the Idoloscope. And on April 21st, 1895, they set up a sheet in their Manhattan storefront and projected footage of a boxing fight, technically becoming the world's first public film projection. At the same time, an amateur inventor named Charles Francis Jenkins was working in Washington, D.C. He teams up with a mechanic named Thomas Armott, and together they create their own project called the Fantascope, which they patent in July 1895. It's different from the Latham projector in that it used a series of complicated gears to briefly pause a frame of film in front of the projection light, creating an illusion of continuous movement. Now, these gears gave Jenkins and Armott endless trouble. Even after their patent was filed, they were still experiencing mechanical failures and tensions were running high. But on September 7th, they finally got the Fantascope working and they decide to secure the very last concession space on the eastern edge of the Midway at the Cotton States Exposition in Atlanta, Georgia. Yes, I know it's taken a long time, but we are finally here. For those who don't know, the Cotton States Exposition was a World's Fair held on the site of modern-day Piedmont Park. Victoria has a fantastic episode all about it, so please go check that out if you want to learn more about this really important moment in Atlanta history. Now, Armat borrows $5,000 from his brother to construct a building to show their invention. It was divided into two rooms, with each having a different projector running, and they would charge $0.25 cents for entry. They opened the doors on September 25th. The Atlanta Journal wrote a small blurb, quote, This is unquestionably the most wonderful electric invention of the age. It is the first public exhibition, and nothing like it has ever been seen before. Consequently, it is difficult to describe. By means of this wonderful invention, you see a perfect reproduction, full life-size, of the living originals. Every act and motion absolutely perfect, even to the wink of an eye. For Jenkins and Armat, 
everything went downhill from there. They had few visitors. This might partly be due to their late arrival to the fairground. They also had competition. Edison's kinetoscope and the Latham's idoloscope had presentations at the expo. They became so desperate for patrons that they waived the upfront admissions and instead asked people to donate 25 cents on their way out of the building. Armat and Jenkins began fighting. They started talking to the other film inventors, plotting how to stab each other in the back. On October 13th, Jenkins just takes one of the three Fantascope projectors they brought with them and runs off to his brother's wedding in Richmond, Indiana. Two days later, a fire breaks out at the building next door, which damages their building and ruins one of the projectors. Bitter and in debt, Armat and Jenkins spent the next several years in litigation, each claiming that they were the singular inventor of the Fantascope. Armat would eventually win and sell the patent to Edison's Kinetoscope Company, where it was rebranded as the Wizard of Menlo Park's newest invention, Edison's Vitascope. But we should not let their ignominious end cloud this incredible fact of history. The world's first cinema, the first building ever built specifically for the purpose of showing motion pictures, stood right here in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, as far as its exact location, I've really tried to pin this down. There are maps of the Cotton States Expo Fairground, one of which does label a booth on the Midway as quote-unquote living pictures. However, I've come to believe that this is not the location of the Fantascope. I think that the Jenkins Armot building was built so late that it's not actually marked on the maps of the fairground. If anybody knows more about this, please email me behind the slate pod at gmail.com. I would love to know. But my best guess is that this revolutionary structure stood roughly 50 feet west of the Charles Allen Gate in modern day Piedmont Park. But what happened next in Atlanta's movie history? Well, like much of the country, the initial buzz and novelty of motion pictures started to wear off by 1900. Edison and even the Lumieres began to openly joke that movies were nothing more than a passing gimmick. The galloping tintypes, as they were called, were being shown in disreputable backroom theaters called Nickelodeons because generally you paid a nickel for admission. This was not considered proper entertainment. The movies were dirty oddities, and the Nickelodeon was not a place where good, hard-working people would be seen. Things gradually started to change as directors began to use the magic of editing to tell stories. 1903's The Great Train Robbery was a huge breakthrough in narrative structure, and as the stories got better, more people wanted to see them. In Atlanta, we start to see records of some more reputable theaters being built in the downtown area in 1906. Then, in 1907, Atlanta became the site of another first in cinema history. The first ever professional two-screen movie house called the Twin Theater opened at 46 Whitehall Street. Each room would screen a 15-minute film for a nickel, and by 1910, the Twin was showing over 45 films a day and was considered Atlanta's leading movie house. 
One of the first movie palaces was built a year after the twin. The 81 Theater was a single-screen, 1,500-seat movie and vaudeville house that opened in 1908 on Decatur Street between Cortland and Ivy. Now, I don't know about the first three years of its operation, but in 1911, it was listed in the Atlanta City Directory as Colored. It would go on to become the only movie house in Atlanta where black patrons could sit on the main floor and enjoy a film. It was soon bought by Charles Bailey, who was white, and renamed Bailey's 81. Segregation and Jim Crow was an omnipresent reality of Atlanta life, and the oppression and violence of this system was strengthened by yet another monumental moment of film history that took place right here in the city of Atlanta. Films were steadily becoming more popular as storytelling and editing improved, but everything changed in 1915 when D.W. Griffith adapted Thomas Dixon Jr.'s book The Klansman into cinema's first blockbuster, The Birth of a Nation. Now, Atlanta had already had a terrible experience with the Klansmen. Dixon Jr. had turned the book into a stage play. In 1906, his traveling production is often cited as a precursor to the Atlanta Race Massacre. The story was an unhistorical glorification about the founding of the Ku Klux Klan, which at this time was a long, defunct group that had only existed in the turbulent year and a half after the end of the Civil War. D.W. Griffith had already established himself as America's great cinematic innovator. He had made hundreds of short films through the 1900s and the early 1910s, almost single-handedly inventing our modern language of visual storytelling. His father had been a Confederate veteran who had died from his war wounds, and when he was introduced to Dixon's play, he found the perfect vehicle to combine his film innovations with his lost cause white supremacy. It's really hard to comprehend just how big of an event this horrifically racist movie was. I go into it in full detail in part one of my Melvin Van Peebles series, but think of it like this. It has been estimated that in 1915, the birth of a nation made so much money at the box office that, when adjusted for inflation, it would not be surpassed until Titanic in 1997. The birth of a nation was scheduled to play in Atlanta on December 6, 1915, at a venue called the Atlanta Theater, which was a 1,700-seat movie palace with two balconies just east of Five Points in downtown. On November 25th, Thanksgiving Eve, William Joseph Simmons, along with a group of 15 other men, climbed to the top of Stone Mountain in what was essentially the worst cosplay ever. Imitating the characters in the film, they wore white robes and burned a large cross for all the city to see. White robes and burning crosses were not a feature of the original KKK. These were dramatic inventions created by Dixon for his stage play and then brought to a mass audience by D.W. Griffith. Simmons would go on to organize the rebirth of the Klan, and within 15 years, the organization synonymous with racial violence and white supremacy would have over 5 million members. 
However, it was not just the Klan that was created in response to the birth of a nation. In protesting the film, the NAACP gained its first national press attention. It also inspired numerous black artists and entrepreneurs to start producing their own material. These scrappy independent films called race films, while not seen by many, were able to find an audience in segregated theaters such as The Bailey's 81. Showing both Hollywood films and race films, you can really see how the Bailey's 81 became a cultural institution for Atlanta's African-American population. Throughout the 1920s and 1930s, the Daily World, Atlanta's black newspaper, published daily movie summaries, and its Sunday edition dedicated a full page just to film reviews and commentary. Charles Bailey passed away in 1928, and the theater was passed on to his brother, G. Tom Bailey. As the Depression forced many theaters to scale back, G. Tom Bailey expanded, purchasing the Paramount Theater on Auburn Ave, renovating it for sound, and reopening it as the Royal Theater. He bought the Ritz Theater in Decatur and the Lenox Theater on Mitchell Street, and in 1934, he opened the Ashby Street Theater on the West Side, which was a community cornerstone for generations. Of all these historic Bailey's theaters, only the Ashby still stands. However, it is now abandoned and listed on the Georgia Trust's 2021 list of places in peril. Cinemas really peaked in the late 30s and early 40s, and white Atlantans had hundreds of choices. There were small neighborhood theaters where films would run months after their initial release, such as the Madison in East Atlanta Village, the Plaza on Ponce, and the Euclid Theater in Little Five Points. But then there were the grand luxury movie palaces. In Midtown, there was, of course, the Fox, which I won't talk about here. Go listen to Victoria's episode all about the Fox if you want to learn the full story. But there was also the Rhodes, which stood at the corner of modern-day Spring Street and Rhodes Center. Downtown Atlanta was even more spectacular. Peachtree Street between modern-day John Portman Boulevard and Forsyth was known as the Broadway of the South. There was the Roxy and the Capitol, built next door to each other in 1926 and 1927. A block down the road was the Paramount, a 2,700-seat live performance and movie house, which at the time was the second-largest theater in the world behind only the Capitol Theater in New York City. Down Forsyth was the Rialto, and while the original 1916 building was torn down, it was rebuilt in the mid-60s and remains as a performance space operated by Georgia State University. Anchoring them all right on Peachtree Street was the Lowe's Grand Theater. This incredible building was originally opened in 1893 by a Belgian consul, Laurent de Gives, as de Gives Grand Opera House. At the time, it was the third largest opera house in the United States. In 1927, it was bought by the Lowe's Cinema Organization, which was the largest movie theater company and the parent company to MGM Studios, which was the biggest Hollywood studio. It was remodeled into a single-screen, 2,088-seat movie palace, complete with a $15,000 pipe organ, a fan system, a redone interior, and eventually sound. 
And in 1939, the Lowe's Grand was selected as the location for what was, at the time, the most anticipated film premiere in cinematic history, Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind was, of course, based on local Atlanta author Margaret Mitchell's massively popular 1936 novel of the same name. How popular was it? Well, when bidding for the rights to the book, producer David O. Selznick employed a relatively unknown pollster named George Gallup to measure the popularity of the book and its future box office draw. Gallup came back with results showing that when asked what was the most significant book of all time, people ranked Gone with the Wind second only to the Bible. Needless to say, Selznick paid what he had to to secure the rights. The film was directed by Victor Fleming and starred Vivian Lee, Clark Gable, Olivia de Havilland, and Hattie McDaniel. It had a deeply troubled production with casting problems, rewrites, director firings, and just general chaos. But after a secret premiere screening, Selznick was confident that he had a massive hit on his hands. The film is an epic historical romance centered around the Civil War, yet blatantly displays false depictions of slavery and upholds the myth of the lost cause of the Confederacy. But Georgia, operating in a world of Jim Crow segregation, was very receptive to these themes, much like they were 25 years earlier with the birth of a nation. Producer David O. Selznick wanted to create a spectacle with the premiere, and New Atlanta was just the place to do it. White Atlantans were brimming with civic pride and saw the premiere as an opportunity to show the rest of the country what it had to offer. The event was scheduled for December 15th. The Atlanta Constitution wrote daily updates about preparations for the film's showing. MGM's distribution department planned an elaborate three days of festivities. Women's groups mobilized an army of housewives to remove leaves and trash from the streets. Businesses changed their appearance to look like antebellum buildings. Even the rival Fox Theater, which is across the street from where the cast was housed, erected a fake facade meant to look like Scarlet's antebellum plantation, Tara. Local historical painter Wilbur Kurtz, who served as a technical advisor on the film and is credited with its visual style, was tasked with refurbishing the cyclorama. He took the liberty of adding in over 15 Confederate Navy Jack flags to the painting, which had hitherto been absent. Historical markers were placed across the city to highlight scenes from the novel, and Governor Rivers declared Friday, December 15th, a state holiday. Clark Gable, Vivian Lee, Olivia de Havilland, and David O. Selznick arrived by plane and were greeted by Mayor Hartsfield, Margaret Mitchell, and crowds of screaming fans. The three days of celebration started with a tour of the city. At the Cyclorama, Gable famously joked that the only thing wrong with the painting was that he wasn't in it. Kurtz had one of the floor mannequins recast to look like Gable's character, Rhett Butler. This was followed by a grand costume ball, in which local Atlantans competed to see who could have the most authentic antebellum costume and who could match the body measurements of star actress Vivian Lee. Forty-two women participated by engaging in a multi-week starvation diet to win the prize of wearing one of Scarlett's dresses and dancing with Clark Gable. On the day of the premiere... Over 300,000 people swarmed the streets. Thousands had traveled from across the South to witness the grand event. 
400 National Guardsmen and 120 city police officers were mobilized to control the crowds. However, extra security was needed, and police officers had to form a human barrier, interlocking arms for the seven-mile parade route. But for all the crowds, there was one person who was conspicuously absent. Hattie McDaniel, the African-American actress who played Mammy in the film. For all of its opulence, there was one thing that the Lowe's Grand didn't have, seating for a black audience. Detailed notes from the Selznick archives show that the MGM execs who planned the event were told by local Atlantans not to invite McDaniel. They claimed that the Lowe's Grand could not make an exception for her, lest the event be targeted by segregationists. They went so far as to leave her picture completely out of the commemorative playbill printed for the occasion. When Clark Gable found out about this, he threatened to boycott the premiere. McDaniel herself called Gable and forced him to go. Crowds cheered as the stars took a motorcade from the Georgian Terrace all the way down Peachtree Street to the Lowe's Grand Theater. Among the procession were Mayor Hartsfield, Margaret Mitchell, and four surviving Confederate veterans, one of whom had never seen a film before. They emerged from the theater four and a half hours later. Several of the elderly veterans were in tears. Southern leaders hailed the film for truly honoring the lost cause of the Confederacy. The film went on to break every box office record, except for the one set by Birth of a Nation, which took place before an era of good box office bookkeeping. It won 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actress. But most notably, Hattie McDaniel won Best Supporting Actress for her performance, becoming the first African American to win an Academy Award. At the ceremony held in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, she was forced to sit separated from the rest of the attendees at a segregated table in the back of the room. In the 1950s and 1960s, white flight to the suburbs and the mass adoption of television took their toll on the grand theaters of Atlanta. The Paramount was demolished in 1960. In the wake of desegregation, most of the Bailey's theaters closed as well. The Roxy and the Capitol were demolished to make way for the Weston Peachtree Hotel. But there were some notable additions. In 1968, the last Atlanta movie palace, the Terra, was opened on Cheshire Bridge Road by the Lowe's Cinema Company. A smaller theater, the Coronet, opened just across Ponce from the Fox, for two years, the Coronet's beautiful 600 seats remained relatively empty. But things changed in 1970 when Columbia Pictures released Melvin Van Peebles' first American film, Watermelon Man, starring Godfrey Cambridge. This was one of the first studio films made by a black filmmaker, and black audiences welcomed the film at the Coronet. Based on the success of Watermelon Man, Columbia offered Van Peebles a three-picture deal. But after hating his experience working in the studio system, Van Peebles turned it down and instead used the money he made to shoot his own independent feature in 1971, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Van Peebles refused to submit the film to the MPAA and was given a dreaded X rating. He turned this to his advantage, marketing the film to an underserved black audience with the tagline, quote, rated X by an all-white jury. 
The film opened at only two theaters in the entire country, the Grand Circus in Detroit and the Coronet in Atlanta. The AJC billed the film as Sweet Sweetback, refusing to print the word badass in the advertising. They also penciled in clothes over a scantily clad woman on the film's poster. Sweet Sweetback's badass song broke box office records. Black audiences lined Peachtree Street waiting to get a ticket. It was the first major American film with a strong black protagonist taking revenge on his white oppressors. It went on to gross $15 million at the box office. That's the equivalent of $108 million now. And it ushered in a decade of black-themed films throughout the 1970s, often referred to as black exploitation. But despite these minor victories, the 70s continued to be a difficult time for historic cinemas. Many neighborhood theaters closed or, like the Plaza on Ponce, became X-rated theaters just to survive. With dwindling ticket sales and in need of repairs, the Lowe's Grand was closed in 1977. However, the building, which housed the theater and contained several floors of offices above, had gained historic status and therefore could not be redeveloped. Now, Astute listeners who have listened to the Archive Atlanta episode about the Fox Theater will know that at the same time, a truly inspiring grassroots campaign was launched to save the Fox Theater from becoming yet another parking lot. Local residents banded together and raised enough money to save the Fox from destruction. Now, with the Lowe's Grand shuttered, a push was started to do the same thing. People wanted to preserve the great theater as a national landmark. The Atlanta Urban Design Commission was working with a private group and had formed a feasibility study with Georgia Tech to refurbish the theater. New tax incentives in the 1976 Tax Act assisted the preservation of buildings on the National Register of Historic Places, and serious negotiations were about to begin for the resurrection of the Lowe's Grand. But on January 30th, 1978, a fire swept through the top three floors of the historic building. Two people narrowly escaped with their lives. The damage appeared catastrophic. Initial reports by firefighters stated that the fire had suspiciously started in three separate places at once. But before a thorough investigation could be completed, the site was deemed unsafe, and within a few days, demolition crews had reduced the remaining structure to rubble. Months later, it was revealed through photographs taken at the scene that the Lowe's Grand Theater, which stood in the lower floors of the building, was almost completely unscathed. In all likelihood, it could have been saved, but it was never given the chance. Conspiracies of arson and corruption have lingered ever since. The Georgia Pacific Tower now stands on the ground of the once aptly named Lowe's Grand. But it was not all doom and gloom in the late 1970s. An unlikely hero was waking up to his true calling. George LaFont, a native of San Francisco, had moved to Atlanta in the 1960s to become a management consultant, and he had since launched a successful computer software company. He was now looking for his next endeavor. On a trip to New York City, he decided to attend a screening of the John Huston film, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, starring Humphrey Bogart. When he arrived at the box office, a line of people wrapped around the block. Quote, 
When I saw all those people, I said to myself, George, this is the business for you. In 1976, he took over a small theater in the Peachtree Battle Shopping Center, and in October, he opened The Silver Screen, Atlanta's first repertory cinema, with a double bill of Casablanca and They Died With Their Boots On. Using his business acumen and love of programming, The Silver Screen soon became a hotspot for Atlanta cinema lovers. In 1978, he bought the Great Southeast Music Hall in Lindbergh Plaza, just a few months after the Sex Pistols had played their notorious first American show there. He turned it into the 200-seat screening room as a theater tailored to first-run foreign and arthouse films that weren't being shown in the big theater chains. He opened more cinemas, and in 1979, when the Silver Screen's lease wasn't renewed, he acquired the Terra and expanded it from two screens to three. He continued to program with unrivaled courage. He secured exclusive booking for the British film Chariots of Fire, which attracted a huge Christian audience and would go on to shock the world, winning the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1981. He also defied local bands, screening the penthouse-produced film Caligula and the erotic drama The Story of O. For the latter, authorities raided his theater and took the print. LaFont sued and eventually won on the grounds of the First Amendment. He continued to acquire theaters, most notably the Plaza in 1983. By 1986, LaFont controlled 11 screens in seven locations and had secured the Atlanta premiere for every one of that year's Best Picture nominees. Over the next 20 years, he continued to operate, buy, and sell theaters and curate a mixture of repertory, art house, and foreign films for Atlanta audiences until he retired in 2018. The Plaza Theater, which started this whole deep dive, has had several owners since LaFont, but each has done their part to continue its legacy. In 2017, it was purchased by Christopher Escobar, the executive director of the Atlanta Film Society, and it now stands as one of the last remaining testaments to Atlanta's glorious cinematic past. There are other theaters that could potentially still be saved. In my neighborhood, East Atlanta Village, sits the abandoned Madison Theater. Opened in 1928, this single-screen movie house operated on flat shoals until 1972. It now sits abandoned, right between the Earl and Joe's Coffee Shop. Similarly, the Bailey's Ashby Theater still stands on Martin Luther King Drive Northwest and, like I said, has been placed on the Georgia Trust's 2021 list of places in peril. In November 2022, it seemed that Atlanta was poised to lose yet another of these historic cinemas when Regal Theaters announced the closing of the Terra on Cheshire Bridge Road. However, just two weeks ago, during the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival, Plaza owner Christopher Escobar made a big announcement. He, along with several partners, is purchasing the Terra to restore it to its former status as one of Atlanta's premier art house and repertory theaters. They are currently raising money to help in the reopening. You can go to TerraAtlanta.com to donate or pre-purchase tickets and help with the effort. We have lost so much of our cinematic heritage and so many of these valuable community centers. 
it is rare that we have the opportunity to save one. In researching this episode, I spent a lot of time on the website cinematreasures.org, which is a message board where people can document and share memories about current and demolished theaters. Reading the messages that people post about these buildings is truly moving. You hear stories about parents connecting with children, about first dates, and precious time spent with grandparents. You read about the first time someone saw their hero on the screen, and the moments when people found their life's calling being acted out before them. Theaters and the movies that play in them are more than just money-making vehicles. They are unique communal experiences. Walking into a darkened theater with a group of strangers ties us not only to our Atlanta history, but it goes all the way back to our ancient ancestors, venturing into caves and telling stories of the world as they saw it. These are emotional, intellectual, and spiritual spaces that play an important role in the fabric of our lives. The meaning we find in theaters gives them a unique power to unite a community and connect us with our past. I encourage all of you to not take these precious spaces for granted. Go out, see a movie. You will not regret it. I want to thank you so much for listening. Once again, my name is Aaron Strand. You can check out my show, Behind the Slate, wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, have any questions, email me, behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. That's behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Behind the Slate Pod, on TikTok at Behind the Slate Pod. And last but not least, I need to thank Victoria Lemos from the bottom of my heart for not only having me on her show, but for all the incredible work she has done to preserve the incredible history of this great city. Thank you so much for listening. This has been so much fun. And until next time, that's a wrap. So there you have it, the story of Atlanta's cinema history. Uh, Please check out the show notes for all the links to Behind the Slate, the podcast, um, as well as how to contact Aaron with any questions or extra information they may have. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please remember to rate or review the podcast, share it with someone you love, and I hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.